The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Well, if you're able, please remain standing right where you are uh, and join us in the reading of the Scripture. It's in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, what a glorious and wonderful text. Daniel chapter 1. It's a great text of God's Word. And I'm going to read it to you now. It's, I'm going to read the entire chapter. This is a narrative in God's Word, and this chapter really is a whole. So I want to give it to you as a whole. And I want you to kind of follow along with me. And I'm obviously in this expositional sermon on Daniel and his crisis. I'm going to be going to be coming back to this text. Let me also go ahead and alert you. We're going to be right back here next Lord's Day in the book of Daniel in another crisis. And that's with Daniel and also Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That'll be in Daniel three. Now, would you follow along with me in God's word? God's word is the truth. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Keep your Bibles open. I'm going to finish this chapter in just a few moments for you. But if you would, just keep your Bibles open there. And uh, we arrive now at this case study of Daniel in crisis. Now, interestingly... Daniel in crisis is very much like Daniel in crisis is very much like uh, all the other crises we've been looking at to learn how to view crisis from a biblical world in life view, how to respond to it and therefore how to live uh, for Christ in the midst of crisis with the confidence in Christ. And um, and as we arrive at it, we see it's been coming every single time, hasn't it almost? National crisis, personal crisis. National crisis, personal crisis. No different here. One morning, 605 B.C., Daniel, along with the new names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are awakened to a foreign king with his army and all his power, Sweeping up King Jehoiakim, sweeping up all of the vessels of the temple, and taking away a select group of the nobility, of the privileged, of the advanced, and of the achievers, to take away to the land of the Chaldeans, and there in the land of Babylon itself. The king's name was Nebuchadnezzar, and that's what he has now done. Can you imagine that? Now, put this in your mind. 
when you put together the chronology of the book of Daniel, likely Daniel, Daniel would have been in our Raiders youth ministry. He would have been about junior high age. That's what he would have been. And that's what happens on this day. We're going to see the lessons that we've already learned affirmed in Daniel. But now you're going to see something else. You got a national crisis. You got a personal crisis. And then Daniel will establish another crisis. Another test. In fact, in this text, as we read on, you're going to find out the word crisis and test are interchangeable. And and a crisis, therefore, like a test, is always there to reveal and refine. A crisis or a test reveals what you know, what you don't know, and what you need to know. And it becomes the opportunity to refine so that as you learn what you need to know, now you know it and you know how to respond to the crisis. Do you die in a pile of self-pity? Do you withdraw into passivity? Do you react with worldly, fleshly anger, man-centered, generated anger? How do you respond? Do you simply give up? Do you give out? How do you respond to the crisis when it comes? Well, Daniel obviously has a crisis along with those who would be swept up with him and taken to Babylon. And as he arrives there in this crisis, how is he going to respond? When he responds, he's going to do something. Let me, let me try to put it this way. If we were in England where our, where our law system developed, there's a moment in a trial where a witness is brought and placed in something. It's a box with a rail around it. And it's right in the center. And there the person is called, sworn in, and now has to give a testimony. And that place is called the dock. You're put in the dock to bear testimony. Every time a crisis comes, Christians are put in the dock. People are about to... People are about to form ideas of our God by the witness we bear in the dock during that crisis. But Daniel shows us something else. The believer in a crisis not only is in the dock and bears witness by our response, by our words and our response, by what we say and by what we do. But we also find out that God is in the dock with us. In fact, there's going to be another crisis. Daniel is going to bear witness to God. Will God show up? What witness will God bear through Daniel's witness? Daniel's Faithful witness becomes the occasion for God's faithful witness. I want you to get there with me, but I want you to get there with me the way Daniel, by the Spirit of God, brings us there in this first chapter. Maybe the best way for me to do this is just to remind you of our previous lessons we've already learned about the Christian in crisis. We had an overview lesson. Remember that? Lesson number one? Lesson number one was that from Titus 2, 11 through 14, that we are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's how we are supposed to live. That's how God has called us to live. That wonderful Titus 2, 11 through 14, I, what I love to tell people is that's the first amazing grace hymn. It begins with uh, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Then comes this text, and the grace of God is instructing us, disciplining us to do what? To deny all ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In other 
words, when crisis comes in a broken world, the Christian responds this way. The Christian responds sensibly, righteously, and godly. That is prudent without panic. That is trusting God without tempting God. That is, that is bearing witness before the Lord and not only bearing witness before the Lord, but living faithfully in order to live fearlessly. Hey, does that ring a bell looking at Daniel? Faithfulness and fearlessness. Now, listen, fear is not a bad thing. It's a, it's a God-given emotion. It depends whether your fears are informed by your sins or your fear is dealt with by God's promises. That's really the issue. Has the perfect love of God cast out the sinful use of fear in your life? And that's what you see with Daniel. And that's what we're about to see, his faithfulness. Not only providing him fearlessness, but also setting up God in the dock to show his faithfulness through Daniel's faithfulness. And then secondly, we then went to a case study with Joseph and we found out that Joseph, when he gives this answer to his brother's request, well, don't kill us now that dad's gone. He says, listen, don't fear. Don't don't be worried. What you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring all this about. In other words, God's providence and sovereignty is superintending the crisis. When you put me in the pit, when I ended up in Potiphar's house, when I ended up in prison, when I ended up in the palace... When I ended up as premier of uh, the nation of Egypt, that's God at work. And he's multifaceted, multidimensional. He is multipurposing all through all of this. In In other words, God's providence, we say singular, but in reality, his providence is full of multiple providences. He's working in Egypt. He's working in the nations. He's working in Joseph. He's working in Jacob. He's working in the brothers. He's working in... He's working on um, Pharaoh. He's working on Potiphar. He's working on Potiphar's wife. He's doing all of those things. The third lesson that we learned is not only uh, not only from Joseph do we get a lesson, but we also get a lesson directly from Jesus when he was asked about two crises, the towers falling in Siloam and then also the Galileans who had been put to death and then their blood mingled with sacrifices in, in an act of blasphemy by Pilate. And, and they're asking him, well, did they sin or their parents sin? Why was this happening? And, And he, Jesus, then informs him, every one of these catastrophes that you see has a saturation of God's grace. Because every catastrophe is an urgent foundational call to repent or perish. Your question should not be, why did the tower fall on them? Your real question ought to be, why doesn't it fall on me? And, by the way, this is warning you. Of the day when God's wrath and judgment will fall on all who stand against him. So repent or perish. The crisis calls you to not only be right with God, but to walk rightly with God. And then the fourth thing that we learned last week is that from Nehemiah, when Nehemiah heard of the national and personal crisis in Jerusalem and what was happening to the people in the city, what he did is he wept, he sat down, he mourned, and he fasted, and he prayed that a crisis is a, is a call to the foundational and urgent efforts of fervent prayer. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availed much. If my people, God's covenant people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Now we come to a fifth lesson. Here is our fifth lesson. Our fifth lesson is from Daniel. And if what I'd ask you to do is walk through this text with me and let me just give you three things to arrange your thoughts around. The first thing I want you to see when you come to this text is simply this, that in this text, the spirit of God through Daniel, Daniel's memoir is letting you know something that there is a story behind the story 
in the story and through the story. When I was a kid growing up, there was a guy that was on. I, actually, it was interesting that even as a, a child and then as a teenager, I enjoyed listening to him. His name was Paul Harvey. He had a wonderful voice and he would always um, give some story to us that we're all familiar with. And then he'd say, now, here's the rest of the story. And then he would give you the backdrop. What goes on in the background? What happens Backstage, and he gives you the story behind the story. And that's what you have the privilege to know, not the details, but the reality that in the stories of life and the story of life, there is a story behind the story. There is a story in the story. There is a story throughout the story. And that story is God is working. That's the story. Imagine Daniel wakes up and all of a sudden he's a he's now a slave. He was a guy of obvious privilege and nobility, achievement, and some already in his young, young junior high age was already known I mean, how in the world did they know who to sweep up if they weren't known to be such people? And so he has some reputation already along with his three friends and others. And you wake up privileged, achiever, acknowledged, some fame. And now, before the day's out, you're a slave. Before the day's out, you don't have your temple to go to. You don't have your city to walk through. You're now in a foreign city, a temple with a foreign God, and you've now been swept away into that place. That's where you now are. That's where you now find yourself. But notice this moment. It didn't just get here. God had brought his people out of Egypt with his strong right hand. He took them through the Red Sea, and destroyed the Egyptian army. He took them to Mount Sinai and gave them his law. And even his patience continued when he kept them for 40 years in the wilderness, even when they were disobedient to bring them to a promised land. Then he gave them the promised land through Joshua and his leadership. Then he settled the pro- the. He settled the, they settled the promised land with the oversight of God-given judges. Then they have a kingdom, a united kingdom. The first king Saul, the next king David, the next king Solomon. But then the ten northern tribes rebelled against the Lord. They began to commit spiritual adultery. They even embraced child sacrifice of Molech as well as the fertility cults of the pagans with all of the sexual promiscuity and perversion. And God had said in his word that when my people go astray, I will take a nation that's not my nation and I will use that nation to bring judgment upon them. And that's exactly what he did with these ten tribes in the ninth century as he brings in the Assyrians. This ferocious, violent kingdom that steps in and brings judgment upon the ten tribes. You would have think the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, would have learned their lessons. But no, they continued and they also went into a downward spiral. Even though you go read your Bible, even though God visited them with five revivals during that time. Yet they continued in rebellion against God. And so God then raised up another nation. That nation defeated Assyria. That was the nation of the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians come down. And in 605, they capture Jerusalem. They'll come back again for another uh, pillaging of Jerusalem in 597. And then they'll come back again and destroy the temple itself in 586. And all the while taking people away into the Babylonian captivity of the God's covenant people. 
And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are those young men who are identified, who are carted away in that first foray. And now they have arrived in this place. That's where they are. God is now at work in their life. And you know God is at work because it bleeds in the text. You know, when God forms, frames, and fills his word, he puts all kinds of biblical clues for us. Now, if you're just sitting in Jerusalem on 605, and then in comes Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, you've already heard of the power of the Babylonians and their ferocity and their defeat of the Assyrians, and now they've shown up, and now look... Nebuchadnezzar has not only defeated us, Nebuchadnezzar has taken away our king. Nebuchadnezzar has taken away the vessels of the temple. Nebuchadnezzar has taken away the elite of the population. No. God gave them into his hand. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 tells you, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. Then God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to bring the people and the vessels and Jehoiakim to Babylon. And there they arrive. But look at the clues. They abound again. Look, go down to verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. How did how, why did the chief of the eunuchs give these um, these special privileges to Daniel upon his request? Because God gave him favor. That's why. Slip over to verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God was the one that had so gifted them with their intelligence, their ability, their maturity, their insights. You see, God is at work. There's the story behind the story, in the story, throughout the story. Sometimes we're given details like this, but whether we're given the details or not, this is what you know. God is present. God is working. In fact, God says he is working all things together for his glory and for the good of his people. That's what God is doing. But let me give you a second way to look at this text with me, and that's this. You get to look at Daniel's. Now, can, would you listen to my, listen to, I'm going to give you a couple of extra words beyond your outline. Daniel is looking and evaluating his location and his vocation from a particular perspective. Daniel is applying a biblical perspective to both his location and now his present vocation. (laughs) What was his vocation before? Well, Daniel, you're going to be cream of the crop. What is his vocation now? Slave? No. The Babylonians think that's his vocation. And the Babylonians are going to train him for civil service. But that's not his true vocation. Nor is Babylon simply his location. And he gives you a clue. Go back, if you would, that first part that I read. It said that, how does Daniel describe what's happened? That God gave them over, verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them where? To the land of Shinar. Hey, Bible students... Does that ring a bell? Land of Shinar? Well, it would be a faint bell because this term has not been used for literally hundreds and hundreds of years. But you know this term because you remember hearing the tinkle of that bell in Genesis 11. After the flood... God gave his, God gave Noah and his family and their descendants a command. And that command was to be fruitful, multiply, and do what? Fill up the earth. That's what you're supposed to do. And Genesis 11 tells you what the descendants of Noah did. They did not do what God said. 
they built the city. In fact, here's what it said. They took counsel among themselves. I'm not reading Genesis 11, but I'm going to paraphrase it for you. In Genesis 11, they say to themselves, come, let us make bricks and mortar. We'll put together building tools. And number two, let us build. Now, listen to this for ourselves a city. And number three. Let us build for ourselves in this city a tower, not just any tower, a tower that reaches into the heavens. Why did they get that threefold counsel? Next phrase. Lest we be dispersed. The Bible says they went to the east to the plain In the land of Shinar. And when they arrived in the plain, what a great sight for a city. Instead of dispersing according to God's command, they congregated according to their rebellion. And in their rebellion, said, let's build a city. You see, do you know why God sends us to cities? It's because that's the congregation Of man's rebellion against him. And we're supposed to bring the welfare to the city. Now, the welfare is not what the city wants. The welfare is what God wants for the city. And so we are supposed to bring that. And as they they built this city, it was in rebellion against God. And then they said, and then they brought a monument to that rebellion. It was a tower that would reach into the heavens. And that tower was to reach into heaven lest they be dispersed. People ask me, why did they build a tower that reaches into heaven? I say two reasons. Uh, Two reasons. In rebellion against God, we're going to congregate against God instead of disperse and fill the earth for God. And to do that, we're going to build a city that has a tower. And the tower will reach into the heavens. And here you have man-made state messiah. A city-state Messiah, the city-state will be the Messiah. We will make the way to heaven. Not God will come down from heaven to make a way. We will make our way to heaven. But that's not all. I think they're building something in case there comes another flood from God that they can climb into and be saved. They're building it big enough to be able to withstand Such a flood again. In other words, what you have here is a place called Babel, where God makes them Babel to disperse them because they were doing this with one language. Doing what? It was organized rebellion, rightly said by one of the commentators. This is your first statement of the kingdom of the Antichrist. State-supported Messiah religion, we will deliver you, we will provide for you, and we will give you the insurance that God can't get to you with judgment. Here is the Antichrist showing up already. So, what? why am I doing this? <laughs> because what does Daniel say? Daniel reaches, Daniel, when he arrives there... In Babylon, he knows where he is, and he goes back to a framework, the land of Shinar. He looks back. Where I am is simply another phase of where they were. Here is an empire raised up against God to be God and to take war against God's people. This is an antichrist kingdom. That's exactly what it is. Now, what Daniel doesn't have... That you have. Daniel had the information in Genesis when he arrived there. And he gives you the clue with that phrase, land of Shinar. This is another iteration of what was there originally in Babel. What he doesn't have is what you have that then fast forwards into the future. Revelation 17 and 18 that says there is coming a Babylon the Great the prostitute who will be joined to the beast 
And that is, that is a government that is arrayed against God. And here is Babylon the prostitute. Here goes forward. You have the ability, not only with Daniel, to look backwards to see that Babylon is an iteration of Babel, but you have the anticipation to look forward that God is going to bring to an end Babylon the harlot. Babylon the great harlot that will unite with the beast and will bring it to an end. And if you read Revelation 17 and 18, you'll find all of its citizens, all of its adherents brought to an end of themselves in judgment. Famous celebrities, all of them that have put their trust will be ultimately and finally destroyed by the judgment hand of God. Do you see how Daniel's looking at this? What a junior high youth grade student. You see how he sees it? Now I have to ask myself, I've got junior high grandchildren. If tomorrow they would be swept away, how would they see it? How would they view this? How would they look at it? How would they interpret it? How would they look at that crisis? So you not only have his evaluation of his location, you've also got an evaluation of his vocation. What am I? He says it's simple. I'm a residential alien. Residential alien. That's where I am. I am an alien. I am a pilgrim. In fact, Peter, in your, in your study of first Peter, Peter will use this very language. This language of being captured, captured by Babylon. And in the, and in the midst of Babylon, how do the people of God see themselves? They see themselves not as a commune within the whole, but they're in Babylon, but not of Babylon. You are a residential alien. You are a, you are on a covenantal pilgrimage. You are not home. You're in this world. You are in the midst of the various iterations of the Antichrist that stands against God with, with many times demagoguery leaders and tyrants and governments that declare we are your free lunch. We are your free uh, education. We are your freedom. We will set you free. We are the answers to your life. We are the answers to brokenness. We will make the way for you to be right. Put your trust in us and united with the apostate church. They stand against the Lord. How do we see ourselves? We're residential aliens. We're pilgrims. Let me tell you how we don't see ourselves. We don't see ourselves as defeated. We don't see ourselves as withdrawn. We don't see ourselves as isolated. We don't see ourselves as simple reactionaries and rebels. On the contrary, we see ourselves as ambassadors for Christ. In a kingdom arrayed against Christ, we find ourselves ready to serve Christ, even though that kingdom is attempting to do what? Exactly what they did to Daniel. Look, at, look with me in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. And for why should he see, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. 
Let us be given vegetables to eat and drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, he, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and were to and their drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them to before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. My goodness, this is so packed and I've just got a couple of minutes. So let me just merely say to you, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego get there and, and the kingdom arrayed against God begins to go to work on them. First, with isolation. Second, with indoctrination. They were put into the University of Babylon with a three-year curriculum. Thirdly, with a designated vocation, they were going to be put in the king's service of the kingdom. They were being prepared for it. So they are being isolated. There's isolation. There is indoctrination. There is education. They even renamed them with identification. Here, they do what every servant of Satan, every demagogue, every tyrant, every, uh, every nation that raises itself up against God to be God. They, they isolate. They get, go after the youth. They isolate. They educate. They indoctrinate. They identify them. They place their mark upon them. And then they will then would desire to control them. But what is Daniel? How is he going to see himself? Daniel's going to see himself the way John instructs us to see ourselves. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. Daniel sees himself the way Peter tells us. This world is not your home. You're a pilgrim. You're a residential alien. You're living on a green card. In fact, you're one of the greatest benefits even to this kingdom that would destroy you. You're still an asset to it. You bring the welfare of God to that kingdom and that city. But you are mine. You are not theirs. You are on a journey and a mission. You have a great commission from a great king. You have a great commission, you have a great message, you have a great king, and you are ambassadors for that king. Daniel is under the temporal control of Nebuchadnezzar by God's divine appointment. But Daniel sees his location ultimately in the kingdom of God. And his vocation is a servant of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's why he makes a decision that he makes. Why in the world does he put the stake in the ground? Why does he raise the flag over diet? Now, some would tell you, well, this is, see, this is the Bible telling you, you all ought to be vegetarians. This is the Bible telling you, abstain from wine. Well, I mean, those are certainly valid choices for Christians to do, but that's not what he's doing. And I can take you to many passages of Scripture to show you that's not what he's doing. And if he is doing, then his Savior failed this test. Because his Savior ate meat, and his Savior uh, drank from the wine of the day. Well, because the food isn't kosher. I think you're getting close when they say, well, the king's food was the best food and the best food came from the sacrifices the people brought to the pagan gods 
And that food was saved for the priests, the counselors, and the king. And the king had the best. Therefore, you're partaking of food sacrificed to idols. And I think you're on to something. But I don't think you've really got the story yet. The story is in the phrase that in one form or fashion is repeated seven times. He would not eat the king's food. He would not drink the king's wine. The king's table. The king's menu. Seven times in one form or fashion, Daniel gives you the emphasis. I'm not going to be owned by the king. Y'all know you disciple and you work with a lot of businessmen and women. And um, one of the ways that you do business is what? You take people out for a meal. And then what do you do? You, you give them the sales pitch. But here's the way you always do it. You come up to you now. I want you to listen to this. Here's a little piece of, here's a point that's not a point in the sermon, but I'm going to give it to you. Remember this for the rest of your life, all right? When someone comes up to you and says, hey, I want to buy you a, a free, I want to have a conversation with you and buy you a free lunch. In the back, in your mind, not back, front of your mind, remember this. There is no such thing as a free lunch. That lunch is being designed to put you uh, into some form of obligation to them. It is setting you up. It is making you obligated. And it is designed to get something from you. The king's table was no free lunch. And Daniel decided... This, you know, whenever I talk with our young people and they go away to college, I always tell them, listen, as soon as you get there, find the church, find the campus ministry, find Christian friends, and above all, raise your flag. Let everybody know that you're a believer. Do that immediately. Let Get yourself accountable. Put yourself in the dock. Well, Daniel is in the dock. So here's your takeaway. Daniel is in the dock. The real crisis in a crisis is how will you respond to the crisis? That will depend on how you view the crisis. And that ultimately depends on who is your king and your savior. Is your college your king? Is your sports team your king and your savior? Who is your king? Who is your savior? Isn't it interesting how Daniel is and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, watch them. They are not in abstract rebellion. They are cooperating. But their cooperation is a framed, qualified, modified cooperation. And it's this. They have a cooperation that is guided and framed by an uncompromising consecration. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Mr. King, you're a temporal authority. We'll treat you as such, but you're not the king. I've got another table I'm going to sit at. I've got other food I'm going to digest. I've got other drink that I'm going to imbibe. I am sitting at my king's table and I will eat his word. I will drink of his spirit. I will build my life on him. And I know as I stand in the dock to be faithful to him, he will be in the dock to be faithful to me. Nebuchadnezzar didn't give them a job. God gave them the job through Nebuchadnezzar as God did his job on Daniel. And Daniel shows that the Lord is at work within him. And Daniel stands with this clear statement. He knew where to raise the flag. He knew where to put the stick. 
When the crisis comes, how do you see the crisis? That'll determine how you respond to the crisis. And the way you see the crisis is always determined by who is your king and your savior. It's his table that you want to sit at, eat from, drink from. And then God faithfully honors his people with his word. And by his spirit. Isn't it interesting that chapter ends with something that you would think would be in chapter 12. And he was. Daniel served. All the way to the first year of King Cyrus. Now, do you know what they just told you? This Daniel who got the top job as the advisor and counselor to Nebuchadnezzar. Will serve not only Nebuchadnezzar. And the kingdom of Babylon, which will be defeated by the kingdom of Medo-Persia, but he will be serving the king of the Medo-Persians when the people are sent back to Israel. His name is Cyrus. In other words, 70 years, 70 years are in that statement. From Nebuchadnezzar to King Cyrus, 70 years, not three years, 70 years are in that statement. And Daniel will be that chief counselor. For two empires, five kings, because his king was the king of kings, and his savior was his king, and our king Jesus is our savior. By the way, don't stop there, because not only will Medo-Persia remove Babylon, who removed Assyria, There'll be another iteration of an antichrist kingdom. It's called the Greek Empire. That'll be struck down. And then there'll be another one called the Roman Empire. So I'm going to ask you, don't stop here. Go not 70 years. Go 50, I mean, go 500 more years. And a star is going to rise. And counselors. From this same land of Shinar are going to see that star and they're going to go to the legacy of the counselor from 500 years ago who had brought the word of God. There was no testimony of God in the Babylonian Empire until Daniel. Listen, those temples, they did you know they had literally thousands of gods in Babylon, in the temples, all over Babylon. No testimony to Yahweh. But Yahweh got a testimony to Yahweh when he sent Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now you got a monument to the glory of God. Not one built by a king, but one built by the king of kings. And that's his people. That's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he'll rise up to the place of importance. And he will import that biblical literature that has informed him into the libraries of Babylon. And then 500 years later, they'll be reading from numbers in the book of Moses. Books of Moses. And they'll remember the same legendary Daniel who brought that word, who lived that word every day at the appropriate time would turn his face to Jerusalem. And this man of word and prayer, they then see a star and they head to the same city of Jerusalem. And there, these wise men will see the King of Kings. I invite you to him. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to be in your word and to spend these moments in scripture together. Thank you, O oh God, that even though there is a seemingly inexhaustible, constant iteration of kingdoms that stand against our God, that claim to be God, that take the place of God, that demand the allegiance that only a God should receive, the adoration that only God should receive. 
I thank you, God, that they are merely in your hands and they are not inexhaustible. They will come to an end. Babylon, the great harlot, will be thrown down along with the beast through Christ our Lord. So, Lord, as the crisis comes, help us to be good citizens in the kingdoms of this world, to be in the world, a witness for Christ in the world. But may the kingdoms of this world know as they see only one flag that flies over our hearts and lives, the cross of Christ. He is our king. He is our savior. If you have never come to this Christ who came for you, you don't build a tower to get to him. He is your strong tower. He has come for you. Would you today come to him? If you want to write me or um, talk with me or communicate, I would love to share with you how you, by faith and repentance, can join Daniel and the glorious saints of God in the pilgrimage on this world to the glories of the celestial city of Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus, who came from there to save you. And Father, I'd lastly ask you for all of your people who know you, may we be in this world but not of it. May we be residential aliens who bring the blessing of God by living for the glory of God through the power of the grace of God in this world. But may the world see as we stand in the dock to bear testimony of Christ. Our God is with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.